this morning is week five in our present series, We Are Church. And um, Dan and I are focusing on what kind of church we at Tamworth Elim are seeking to be based on the teachings of Scripture. Um, we've declared in past weeks that we are a Jesus-centered church, we're a loving church, we're a servant-hearted church, we're a Bible-loving church. It wasn't your fault. wasn't my fault. This is becoming a regular thing, isn't it? I just want to be in the Okay. And this morning, I'm going to talk to you about our being an inclusive church. A church that opens its arms wide to everyone, irrespective of race, ethnicity, social status, education, gender, sexuality, or age, or even the football team you support. <laughs> the Apostle Paul uh, writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to pray, bring praise to God. Well, how did Jesus accept us? And the answer to that, he accepted us unconditionally. He accepted us unreservedly. The message puts it this way. So reach out and welcome one another to God's glory. Earlier in that same letter, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So long ever before we reached out to him, he took the initiative, he made the first move, he loved us the way that we were. Now, uh, Julie and I have been, uh, or are together reading through our Bibles in one year, and I know that some of you are doing the, the, the same. And each morning, what we do is at breakfast time, we read a passage, or listen to a passage, listening to David Suchet read a passage of the scriptures, which is very soothing, I must say. And we read uh, from the Psalms or Proverbs, and then we read from the Old Testament, and then we read from the New Testament as well. And I enjoy reading the Psalms. I often find the, the psalmist prayers uh, or requests could be my own, and I use them in that way. I love the New Testament because the New Testament is Jesus-centered, it's grace-centered. But then we come on to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament sometimes, let's be honest, can be a little bit strange, can't it, for us, for our modern years. Uh, sometimes more than a little bit strange. And I know that some of you are doing the same reading plan as Julie and me, which means that at the moment, this week, you are reading through Leviticus. It's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? Come on, let's be honest. It's learning all about ancient codes of hygiene and chapters on mildew and menstruating women and bodily discharges and skin diseases. Not the most inspiring when you're eating your cornflakes. Maybe we should actually change it to bedtime reading. I think it would work, actually, because there's a cure for insomnia, perhaps. But in... <laughs> In Leviticus, I'm not supposed to say that, am I? I just did. In Leviticus, we read also that the ancient Jews 
had lists of certain animals that were regarded as clean and others that were unclean and the clean ones they could eat and the uncleans that they couldn't and the word kosher which is a word that probably we all are aware of which is a Hebraic word which means fit or proper which meant that certain animals were regarded as fit or proper and they could be seen as those animals that were okay to eat others were not and you might have read some of these chapters and scratched your head wondering what on earth has God got against lobster <laughs> or, or rabbit stew or bacon sandwiches and there are a number of theories about this some people believe that uh, they were banned for hygiene reasons believing that um, that some meats were or had a higher potential for transmitting bacteria and were potentially harmful and others believed that certain meats were not eaten because they were also used in pagan rituals now it might be one thing to label an animal unclean but it's an altogether different thing to label a person unclean and yet that is what many of the Old Testament laws did in the book of Leviticus, we are told that those with damaged bodies, the lame, the blind, those who were deformed or crippled in some way with hands or feet, those who were hunchbacked, those who were dwarves, in addition to those with festering sores, skin diseases, women who had just given birth, were declared ceremonially unclean. And therefore, they were excluded from the worship of God. And the Jewish world into which Jesus was born was a, a world full of division, it was a world full of exclusion. In fact, it was far more segregated than any apartheid encountered in the last 50 years in South Africa or in America. And Israel's segregation was multi-layered. And discrimination was on the basis sometimes of race, occupation, physical appearance, gender, age, and people were divided into two camps, those who were clean and those who were not. And it was often believed, also believed, should I say, that those who were unclean could contaminate those who were clean, is why religious people kept their distance from those who were outcasts in society. Now this might sound in our age of political correctness where we're told a person isn't bald, he's follically challenged. <laughs> but these these Old Testament laws about discriminating between people based on gender or race or even bodily health seems absolutely inconceivable to us. We find them shocking. And I've said to you on other occasions that there was a Jewish prayer by a male every morning he prayed that he thanked God that God had not made him a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And yet Jesus, Jesus who came to where we are and made his home amongst us, he was one like no other who modeled inclusion. And he sets the standard for us. And Jesus, as we know, was often misunderstood. He was disapproved of by respectable religious people as Jesus reached out with compassion and mercy on the unloved and the unlovely and society's untouchables. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, we read, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
And as I've said to you before, that that was meant to be a slur on the character of Jesus. It was meant to be an insult. And these religious people were absolutely scandalized by Jesus that he should actually spend time with tax collectors of half-breeds and foreigners and women of ill repute. They just couldn't get their heads around it. Coming from their society and culture as they did, a world of segregation and exclusion, they had a great difficulty indeed believing that God could love outcasts, people that they regarded as sinners. And these words are up on screen before you. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Really encapsulates the, the heart of Jesus, that he didn't welcome them from afar, but he came to them and he ate with them, implying an acceptance of them as people, imperfect sinful people, maybe, but nevertheless they were people of great worth to God. Last month we ran our winter night shelter with other churches in the town and um, volunteers on the evening shift didn't just serve homeless guests but they came and sat with them and they ate with them. It was a deliberate gesture of friendship and acceptance. And when you go through the Gospels you can see the way that Jesus was a revolutionary and a radical. The way that he just dismantled the religious caste system of the day. He touched those who were suffering from leprosy. He allowed a prostitute to wash his feet with her, with her tears and wipe his feet with her hair. Scandalous behavior. And actually he praised their actions and said, whenever the gospel is preached, whatever time, this story is also going to be known. And at the same time he rebuked his host Simon, a Pharisee who didn't give him any of the courtesies. He dined with tax collectors, traitors to his own people, their own people. One of them even became his disciple. He was notoriously lax about religious rituals and Sabbath observance. He praised the Roman centurion, a Gentile, as a person of having more faith than anybody else in Israel. He had a lengthy conversation with a Samaritan woman, much to the dismay of his disciples who said, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus elevated women who had no rights in society. Actually, women's, women were the first people to testify and witness that he had risen from the dead, which is an amazing thing because in society then, women were never used in a court of law because their witness was regarded as an... Uh, uh, unworthy. He tells stories such as the prodigal son, which ends with a banquet not for the one who had worked hard and the one who was faithful in his father's house, but for the good-for-nothing lout who soiled his family reputation. And the point of that was that Jesus was saying that God welcomes sinners, which we all are, with open arms. And you see, right at the center of all this systemic exclusion in Jewish society was the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. On the periphery of the temple, as you can see in that um, um, image on screen, was the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was accessible to everyone, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. 
And this was the, the temple outer courtyard where money changers did their business of exchanging Roman cash for temple currency which was required for the purchase of animals for sacrifice within the temple. And the next area in a, to that was the court of women. And that was only accessible to Jews. That was accessible to wives and children as well, but anyone with a visible disability, they couldn't be seen in that area. And then a, 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 a further next layer was the court of the Jews, which was only open to Jewish men. And beyond this was a closely guarded section of the temple, which was only open to the priests. It was called the holy place. And at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, the place where God was believed to reside. And this area could only be accessed once a year on the Day of Atonement by the High Priest. And the temple functioned as a kind of filtration system of exclusion, an exclusion machine. But we read where then Christ died upon that cross. The veil that separated the holy place where the priests went to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that veil, which was about 60 feet high and an inch thick, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but top to bottom, signifying that God had made a new way of access to himself. And no longer was it necessary to approach God through the blood of bulls and goats. No longer did a high priest need to come and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people once a year on the Day of Atonement. But everyone, men and women, including those who would have been formerly barred, were allowed an audience with God. In a moment, exclusion became inclusion. Although Jesus' ministry was essentially to the nation of Israel, he did prophesy that a day would be coming when the door would be flung wide open to people of every language and tribe and nation. And Jesus' last words, just before he ascended into heaven, were these in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we read that happened in the early chapters of Acts. What Jesus said would happen, happened. The gospel was taken from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it also brought with it new challenges. You see, up until this time, the church had been entirely Jewish. Amongst those who were kosher, those who were clean. But what were they to do with all these new Christians who were now... Gentiles, what were they to do with them? Were they to become Jews first? Were they to be circumcised? Did they have to obey the law? And it was a big question, and you can read through the New Testament. And that probably is the prime question in most of the letters and also in the book of Acts. Well, in Acts chapter 10, and do read this chapter later, God spoke to Peter about this issue. And uh, it was through a trance. It's amazing the way that uh, God speaks to people in the scriptures. And on this occasion, it was through a trance. And Peter, in this trance, in this vision, saw before him, coming down from heaven, um, uh, a sheet 
And on this sheet were all sorts of unclean animals, which were abominable to the Jewish people. Mammals, mammals, reptiles, birds. You see, throughout his life, Peter knew that these um, animals were regarded as unclean. They were off the menu. And Peter also knew that if a Jew inadvertently touched even one dead insect, that person would have to wash themselves and would remain ceremonially unclean until the end of day. Now, a couple of years ago, Julie and I visited Jackie out in Malawi. And dinner was being prepared, and a locust, Julie thought, fell into the pot on the hob. And Jackie said, no, 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 that didn't happen. Look, it's, it's on the floor by your feet. So Julie was comforted by that. We discovered later that there were actually two locusts. <laughs> one fell by her feet and the other did actually fall into the pot and Julie was the lucky one. She was the one with extra meat on her plate that night. Now, if that had happened in Israel, such were their ceremonial ritual, rituals and laws, they would have needed to throw away that dinner and smash the pot as well. Now, giving you a bit of background, in this vision that Peter has of all these abominable, uh, unclean animals coming down on a sheet from heaven, and he gets a voice from heaven saying, in Acts 10.13, Get up, Peter! Kill and eat! Now, Peter felt that he probably needed to remind God of his own laws here, just in case God had forgotten. And he says in the following verse, he says, uh, Surely not, Lord! I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Good Jew that he was. And then came the reply in the following verse, 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now imagine, it's very difficult for us, isn't it, living in the 20th century, you know, 2,000 miles away and 2,000 years away from that time. Let me just put it to you this way. Let me put a photograph on, on screen. Now this is the Elims National Leadership Team. Handsome lot, aren't they? Oh, well, at least one of you could have said yes. yes. Yeah, oh, Jill said yes. I wonder why. Okay. Now just imagine for a moment Elim's national leadership team getting a vision from heaven of a sheet coming down and then hearing a voice from heaven or actually on, on the sheet, I forgot to tell you, on the sheet coming down from heaven you've got bottles of rum and Johnny Walker and Southern Comfort and vodka and then they hear a voice from heaven saying drink up lads and they say, surely not, Lord. We're Elin's national leadership team. We can't do that. We, we don't drink hard liquor. You see, if you can understand that, you know, the impact that was made here upon Peter was even greater than that. And the vision that Peter had was essentially to prepare him for what was happening next. Throughout his life as a Jewish man, 
He regarded those who were non-Jews, those who were Gentiles, as unclean. And yet within moments of receiving this vision from God, he was visited by some Gentiles who came knocking at his door, asking him to go with them to the house of Cornelius. How could he refuse? He had just lost the argument with God on this issue. Do not call anything impure that God has called clean. And this vision that he had of unclean animals on a sheet wasn't about what kind of kebab he could have for supper that evening, but it was about the way that God had welcomed and accepted non-Jews. There's a great verse in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 28, where Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now these three areas that uh, Paul mentions here uh, were areas of major division in society at the time. There was uh, divisions among race and ethnicity, class and social status, and also gender. And Paul is saying there that all of these old distinctions in society have no more value. That our status as part of God's family trumps all of our own old distinctions. And what kind of church are we seeking to be as Tamworth Elim? We are seeking to be an inclusive church. A church without any divisions. A church that reaches out to the unlovely and the unloved. And for those who are marginalized. A church that reaches out to society's untouchables, whoever they might be. I'll tell you what, that's an interesting one to talk about this week in uh, life groups. A church that is not hampered by petty rules. A church that is sensitive and caring. An illustration of that, I know it was very messy this morning. An illustration of that was the way that we together shared communion with all of the kids as well. Oh, it was noisy, wasn't it? Thank God. It was wonderful just to do that. A sign, a picture of our inclusion. Let's have a look for something. Excuse me. Right. That, will, that will do. When we were born, we were a little bit like this piece of paper. We were uncrumpled and we were clean. We were unspoiled and we were not soiled. But when we grow up in this world, what happens is that with the experiences of life that sometimes hurt us, and over time we get bumped and we get bruised, and either from bad treatment of other people or from the silly mistakes that we make ourselves, the wrong choices that we make in our lives, that we become damaged people. And all of us are damaged in some way. And you see, our hope as Tamworth Elim Church, is that we can be a healing community, a place where people can belong, irrespective of how broken they might be. And they can receive healing through prayer. And they can receive support and encouragement through small groups, where people can befriend them and look after them through the stuff of life. And be there for them. 
so that they receive healing and instruction. We're still a bit creased. We're still a bit creased, just like this sheet of paper. But I tell you what, we're an awful lot more together and whole than we were at the start. You see, we're not a perfect church. And we get many things wrong. But our heart is to bring healing and forgiveness and wholeness to people that this world will reject and despise. An inclusive church is a church that is more a fishing boat than a luxury liner. More a hospital for the spiritually sick than a five-star hotel for quiet relaxation. It is a community that helps to bring about spiritual, social, emotional, moral and psychological healing. When Julie and I were first married, we moved into a rented upstairs flat in a part of Swansea. And if you stood on the table in the front room of this upstairs flat, and you stood on tiptoe, and not forgetting I'm six foot three, we could have a sea view. <laughs> Just about. And it cost us £10 a week. Oh, it was a killer. We, it was £40 a month for a flat. That was a huge amount of money. And during that time, we established a new order. We decorated the place, we got some furniture, we scheduled time together. We developed routines which were different from the times when we were single. But our order and organization lasted exactly, to the day, 11 months. And then there was David. <laughs> and all order was, was destroyed, and our routines were disrupted. And our romantic evenings, yes you heard correctly, were no longer guaranteed. You see, it's, it's quite amazing, isn't it, how much space a little fella can take up. The nappies, the pram, the high chair, the bouncer, and all the other paraphernalia. And we were thankful that our carpet was brown, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, you got it. We were not so thankful that it was deep pile, that was another story. The old order and tidiness was lost, but here's the miracle. Here's the miracle. A house became a home. And when a church is inclusive, it sometimes gets messy, and that's okay. And I rather like it that way. Did you know there's two kinds of churches? There's the cold, sterile sort where there isn't a thing out of place, where there's lots of decorum and dignity. And that kind of church is an exclusive club who are religiously inclined. Oh, by the way, is a, put a cartoon up there on the screen. I don't know if you can see the small words. It says, after church service, this is the time when newcomers can get to know the congregation. And you've got uh, um, a cartoon there of people being about... 10 yards away from this one person who's standing on his own. We need to make sure that that's never us. You see, that can be the kind of church that turns people away by having an unloving attitude, where people feel that they could never be good enough or that they will never be accepted. It's the kind of church that turned Mahatma Gandhi away because of the color of his skin. And years later, he wrote these words. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. 
you Christian or you, are, you Christians are so unlike you are Christ. And Christians, whether rightly or wrongly, are often viewed as austere, moralistic, ungracious. They're often defined of, more of, of what they're against and what they're for. They're seen as anti-drugs, anti-sex, anti-gay, anti-just-enjoying life. The other sort of church is an inclusive church. That, it's a great photo of that, isn't it? That reaches out to imperfect people. A church that is dynamic, a church which is full of energy, a church which is vibrant, but also a church which is, which is messy. I tell you what, that's the messiest communion I think I've ever taken this morning. I'm probably one of the best. Loved it. Loved it. As someone said, if it's neat and tidy and quiet and orderly that you're looking for, then a graveyard is your only option. You see, I believe that whenever a church chooses to be outward-looking and inclusive, it will automatically become messier than it was before. I'm sure that some of you have heard of the Jesus Movement in the 1960s. Uh, in America, the movement started at a place called Calvary Chapel, where there were many young 20s, teenage and 20s, um, who were part of a hippie culture of sex and drugs. They turned to Jesus. And many of the traditional churches turned the, the, this motley crew, this motley band of people as they saw them, away from their churches. They thought these people can't possibly be genuinely converted. The idea of having long hair, spaced out layabouts as they saw them, actually being accepted by God was simply one step too far. And many of the ushers in the churches were told if any of these folk came anywhere near, that they were to bar them at the door, not allow them in. After all, they had long hair and, and beads, and some of them didn't have shoes, and some of them smelt as if they'd not had a bath for a year or two. It can get messy. It can get messy. When Julie and I uh, were before here, when we were in South Wales, we started a new church on a very, very rough housing estate, and, uh, and that was messy too. And in messy churches like that, unexpected things can happen in your Sunday morning service. Like one of our new comments shouting out, in praise to God, in, in fairness to him, I effing love Jesus! I think he's effing wonderful! But in fairness to the guy, he didn't say effing. You see, most of these new believers couldn't spell decorum let alone know what that word meant. Now you might ask, does our unconditional love and acceptance mean that we don't have any standards? By being inclusive, does it mean that anything goes? Of course not. To be inclusive and to welcome everyone does not mean that we will necessarily affirm everyone's lifestyle or life choices. But our job is not to judge. Our job is to love others in Christ's name. Our job is to offer welcome and acceptance. And we might run the risk of our critics pointing a finger at us and saying, well, they're not a very godly lot there at Elam Church, are they? By being friends with such people. They call Jesus a drunkard and a glutton because of the company that he kept. 
another story, if I may. And uh, again, it's from the, the church that we were involved in planting in South Wales. Um, one day, a, a guy who'd been a Christian many, many years, long before that church started, he came along to just sort of help in the work then. He was an elderly gentleman. And he came up to me, he said, Steve, he said, I've got a problem. I thought, here goes. The youth, he said, they just cannot wait for you to say amen in the end of the service so they can just leave the church as quickly as possible. And look at them, he said, they're with great disgust. They're all sitting on the wall smoking. What do you think of that? It's giving us a bad reputation. Fancy them being like that, he said. What sort of example is that? And I explained to this guy that these young folk were on a journey and that God was actually doing some good things in their lives. And I said to him, they, like you and me, are not perfect. And I'm sure in the time the Lord will show them some things that will need to change in their lives. And I said, I'm sure that's going to be in God's time, not in ours. And I also explained to this guy that some months before, those same youngsters were taking drugs and robbing houses. They were vandalizing properties. And I actually thought that they were actually doing quite well in their faith. Thank you very much. You see, what he was saying to me was that he was uncomfortable that things had become far messier than they were before. And things can get messy when churches become inclusive. And that's okay for me. I hope it's okay for you too. Some of you would have heard of uh, uh, Dr. Tony Campolo, who's an American pastor and also sociologist. And um, he tells of a story of a business trip to Honolulu. Now, if you've heard this before, you won't mind me showing it again, simply because it's a great story. So sit back, please, and listen to this. Jesus loves us, and he encourages us to come as we are. But he doesn't want us to stay as we are. He loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness. And I just want to reiterate this morning that whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever you feel about yourself, whatever your marital history or sexuality or prison record, you are welcome here. And we want you to know that you belong even before you get to a place of working out exactly what you might believe or what being a follower of Jesus might mean to you. And as far as we are concerned, we want you to take your time. We want you to weigh up and evaluate what the Christian faith means. And we want you to see this as a safe place, a place to explore your spiritual journey, a place where the, there is no question dis disallowed, no question which is too hostile or too simple. Let me quote Tony Campola's words when he said, This is the kind of church that Jesus came to create, the kind that brings joy and blessing to those who are broken-hearted and beaten down, and to lift them up, and to give them joy in their lives, and to be an agent of bringing joy in this world.